Thank you for listening to season two of Spotless, Breaking the Boundaries of Television. Presented by two media powerhouses, Triple Lift and Advertising Week, Spotless brings you in-depth conversations with the leaders who are driving this evolution. So, you know, listen up. Evolution, we came from monkeys, now we're humans. Who knows where we are next? You're going to learn something on this podcast. Wendy Aldrich has been with IPG for nearly eight years in leadership roles at UM and Initiative, spending the majority of her tenure there overseeing the Hulu and Amazon businesses. Currently, Wendy also oversees Legoland California, Zillow, Bear Paint, and Tourism Australia businesses at Universal McCann. Her marketing career spans 25 years, including leading the global visa business at OMD for four years, and two client-side tours of duty at Disney overseeing online marketing for their theme park and resorts and internet businesses. Wendy is fascinated by the psychology behind why people buy and driving preference for the brands she works on. She just moved to a new home in Westlake with her 14-year-old daughter, Maggie. Thank you so much for joining us, Wendy Aldridge. We're excited to have you as a guest on season two of Spotless. Um, Thank you for having me, Haram. Let's start by talking about your very impressive career for a little bit. Would you be able to kind of walk us through your path to UM and kind of like, you know, how you saw yourself landing here? Sure. Well, I went to school and majored in marketing and advertising. So I knew since I was a senior in high school that this is what I wanted to do. Went to school, graduated and started my career on the creative agency side Um, but working in very direct response focused jobs. So that was a good, I think, foundation for what is media today. But I worked at a couple different creative agencies in account management, Ogilvy and Mather, Ruben Poster, and then went to Disney client side when the internet was becoming a thing and worked on marketing for Disney.com for four years left for about five years and went to a couple of internet startups and then went back to Disney for a second tour of duty there. Worked there for four years in the theme parks and resorts division and then uh, got a great opportunity to actually go to the media agency side where I've now been for 12 years. And that job was at OMD running the visa business did that for about four years, and then came over to IPG to run Amazon Globally. Did that for four years, and just finished up running Hulu for four years. So I think you see a pattern. Like I kind of, kind of have four years stints in whatever position I have before it's time for something different. But you know, throughout my career, entrepreneurial type of businesses, so businesses that are scaling and growing and trying to figure things out and also on brands that I really can get excited about and respect. So that's really been, I think, kind of the core, like through line of all of the positions that I've had. Got it. I mean, you know, that's, that's a very impressive set of brands that you worked on. And, you know, as both as a consumer and someone in the industry, you know, I can say that we're very familiar with, with some of the work and, and, and the strategic decisions you've made on behalf of brands. Speaking of brands though, like, How have you seen their needs and expectations change over time? You mentioned earlier, you know, at the beginning of the internet, right? And when mobile was becoming a thing, 
And now obviously, you know, CTV and OTT is probably the hottest buzzword these days. How have you seen, uh, you know, brands needs and expectations change over the course of your time in the agency world? Well, I would say one of the biggest things that has changed, in my opinion, is, you know, back when I started my career, everything was about the creative and media was literally an afterthought about where to distribute that creative asset. And today I feel like media has taken on a much more important role in the ad process and the best campaigns are truly developed between a creative agency and a media agency so that it's collaborative and it's centered on a big idea, not creative leading or media leading. Um, but I do think that the reason media has become so much more important is because you know, the media marketplace has become so much more fragmented, so it's harder and harder to reach audiences at scale. Um, and also, you know, you could have the best creative message possible, but if nobody's seeing it or the right people aren't seeing it, then I think there's been kind of a rebalancing of, um, of how things work in the ad world. Um, and then, you know, as you mentioned, like OTT and digital, you know, I mean, I, digital today is like par and parcel for any campaign. And that was really my background. So, you know, and I, I remember my first job when I talked about when I first started working at Disney, my job was to evangelize internet marketing to all the divisions of Disney so that they could understand, like, what is the role that this plays in your mix? Why should you pay attention to this? You know, because for the longest time, it was always about television. And today, it's really more about, you know, what's not different is reaching the right person in the right place at the right time. Like that's still what we do as marketers, but how you do that and the importance of different channels, I think has changed over time. I think that's a very interesting uh, point to bring up in regards to, you know, having had to work at, uh, I guess, at a time where digital wasn't the go-to. I myself was also at a large media company in which I was focused on the digital products and there were, you know, a few obstacles internally to convince, you know, certain teams that this was the future. If you don't mind, how would you describe some of the obstacles that you faced and how you overcame those in terms of convincing the larger org to lean into something like digital or innovation as a whole? I mean, back then it was really hard. <laughs> so, I mean, the internet was this like scary thing. I think nobody really understood. I mean, but but even today, like, I think we're still trying to convince clients, you know, to get off of linear television so much and to start to evolve their mix and think about TV as a cross-channel, you know, cross-platform opportunity, right? So, you know, TV should be thought of as, you know, how the end user is viewing it, not how we're delivering it, right? So then, you know, there's so many different ways to actually have a presence on somebody's television set or, or when they're viewing television content, if they're viewing it on different devices. And so, you know, when we think about convincing people, like a lot of it is really kind of telling the story around how the marketplace has evolved and giving clients, you know, confidence that if they do evolve their mix, they're not sacrificing reach. They're actually increasing their reach because they're diversifying the platforms in which they're reaching consumers. And so, you know, it, it is, it's an ongoing, you know, challenge and every client's a little bit different, you know, like some clients are more advanced than others. And so in some cases, 
you're arming your day-to-day -day clients with a story that they can go share with upper management, or sometimes, you know, clients are, you know, really not, you know, on the train of evolving their linear television. And so you've got to kind of, you know, continually talk to them and make them comfortable, but it's a little different for, for everybody. I think, I think the other thing too, is even for brands that know that they need to evolve, I think it's a little scary. So you have to kind of let them know that like as their agency, we've got this and we understand the space and we've got the partnerships and everything to make sure that you don't miss a beat. Would you say that some of the trends that we saw, you know, are kind of expedited during, you know, the last year, has that put any brands or clients at ease in any way? Uh, many of those clients who may have been a bit apprehensive or hesitant to dip their toe fully into innovation or CTV formats, would you say that uh, they've responded positively to long-held beliefs around the need yes. to be cross platform fully digital? I mean, most of the clients that I work with, I think have been reading all the articles that have been published around, you know, how the pandemic has actually expedited people's consumption of streaming video. And I read an article the other day that said, you know, going into the pandemic, the average household had 2.8 streaming services. And now coming out of the pandemic, it's four. So not only are they consuming more time with the services that they have, they've actually increased the number of services that they subscribe to. So I think some of those trends and, you know, is when clients start to understand that. And I think even as a consumer themselves, they've probably, you know, followed that same behavior pattern. So I think it just, you know, when they experience it themselves, I think it makes them feel more comfortable as a marketer kind of following that trend. So let me ask this. How many streaming services do you have and, <laughs> and, 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 and why? I'm curious to know. I mean, obviously, you and I are a bit biased because we're in the biz, as they say. But about how many streaming services do you have and why? I would say there's probably three core ones that I watch regularly and six in total that I watch, you know, on a monthly basis, at least within the month. I have more services downloaded, but I mean, quite honestly, you know, there's just not enough time. And I think that's the thing is, I think there's in the United States, there's 300 OTT services now, and there really are like the big, you know, six to eight. And then there's the long tail of everything else that's specialized. So, you know, if you love, you know, environmental stuff or animals or what, you know, it's like, there's, there's an app for you. <laughs> and so, you know, I think- right. So it's almost, it's almost like reverting to the old TV, like where there was ABC, NBC, and CBS, like the big three networks. And then, you know, and then cable came into play. It's almost like recreating that same model in a, in a bit of a new way. <laughs> so I, I agree with you completely. And I'm in a similar boat. I wonder if we've learned anything about the evolution of television from broadcast to cable that we will apply to this new world of bundling uh, with with streaming services, right? So we saw that there were price point considerations, there's content considerations, um, you know, how many is too many? And then you mentioned time, which, you know, is obviously the biggest factor. Uh, while there are services that many consumers engage with that aren't necessarily streaming services, but they're still delivering content in a unique way directly to the consumer. Like for me, I'm very curious to see five, 10 years from now, 
what does this bundling and rebundling look like? And will my appetite for more services be dictated by price or by content? The biggest difference I think today is that the consumer is in control. So you as a consumer can pick and choose what you want to add to your bundle. Um, I think the days of having to buy, you know, a 12 channel package through your cable provider just to get the Disney channel are, is gone. You know, I don't think that's ever going to come back. So even though I think bundling is going to be a, a trend going forward, I think the consumer still has the ultimate power over what they want to pay for. I totally agree with that. So if you were to put your marketer hat on for a moment, and you know, in reality, you've always been a marketer, but representing uh, you know, agencies, thinking of yourself you know, truly as a head of marketing, how would you describe, without being, you know, no need to be too specific, but how would you describe some of the strategies that you would recommend for brands to stay relevant today, right? We're having a conversation around this evolution of television and what it takes to attract the next generation of consumers with so many options out there. How are you in, uh, informing and, and advising clients as marketers to, to implement strategies to stay relevant? Um, a couple of things. One, I would say is to really crack your brand value proposition. So I think a lot of brands, even bigger brands, sometimes kind of waver or as they expand, I think they struggle with like really staying true to their brand essence. And I think the, the better understanding a brand has of who it is and how they want to behave, the easier it is in this crazy media marketplace to know what opportunities to take advantage of and which ones to stay away from and what to prioritize your dollars against. So that would be one. And that is, that's a, you know, old tried and true, you know, marketing 101 type of thing. Like that hasn't changed, but I think it's even more important in this marketplace and in 2021 to, to know what to do going forward. I would say a second thing is, um, and this also isn't new, but I very much believe in it, is being a part of culture. So it's not just about pushing out ads even to your target audience, but it's about engaging your audience in new and different ways so that they're not just seeing your ads, you know? So it's not just what you say, it's what you do. And it could be, you know, just even how a brand behaves, you know, the, the types of messages that they put out on social media, it's the charities that they support or, you know, how, how impactful are they in diversity and inclusion? You know, it's those types of things, because I think people today want to feel good about the brands that they do business with. And so it's not just saying, Hey, we're going to push you a message and this is what we have to sell you. But it's like, we want you to know who we are as a brand and what our DNA is all about, because ultimately that is going to you know, secure that consumer for a long-term relationship. I could not have said that better myself. What I find, and I guess my next question is tied to innovation, which you spoke a bit about. What I find is that oftentimes brands and agencies are looking to leverage those test and learn buttons, but there's usually limited data and research around how effective they might be. So when you're, I guess, assessing whether or not to lean into a new partnership, how are you balancing the lack of data with the 
with these with the spirit of of innovation through test and learn budgets well it's funny because i was just on a call this morning with a client and they are going to market with something that needs kind of rapid traction <laughs> And so they don't really have time to test and learn into what's working or not. So we actually coined the term launch and refine. So it's like, just get out there. Like you, you don't have time to waste. And then every day that you're, you don't have a presence in market for this particular thing that you're trying to promote, you, you just need to get out there and then let's test and refine as we go. You know, and so I think that, you know, for brands that don't have time to waste and need, you know, are in a highly competitive space, I would say that's actually a good approach. Just, you know, we've got so much data at our fingertips already. It's not like we're flying blind. We can go into market with a very strategic approach, knowing that it's rooted in data and solid rationale. But then, you know, you don't know how something's going to perform until you actually put it in market. So, so anyway, so that's one thing, but just as a framework, my agency tends to counsel clients to take a 99-1 approach, meaning that 90% of your budget should be on tried and true practices, 9% should be on, you know, evolving those practices and kind of testing into new things, and then 1% could be completely emerging media, new channels that we don't know much about, but, you know, just to put yourself on the forefront of what's happening and how to connect with new audiences. So, so I think the 99-1 is a good framework, unless if you're, like I said, like in a super competitive space and don't have time to waste, then just launch and refine. So you should definitely trademark launch and refine. But um, the 90, <laughs> no, seriously, I think that's, that's, a great, that's a great approach. And the 99-1 is also interesting to me because you've worked with you know, very large and established brands, as well as a few emerging brands. And so would that allocation of budget vary if they're established versus emerging? Yes, I would say so. So it's funny, like when I worked on Amazon, we had kind of two different sides of the house at the time, where one was launching the big, you know, products like an Amazon Echo device or you know, um, going to market with things that had bigger budgets that were going to be more established versus a whole, we had a whole bunch of little things that we were going into market with, you know, and had never been advertised before. And so I would say on those little tiny things that just need to get out there, that's where I would do the launch and refine. But on the bigger things, I think you can do the 99.1 where you actually have some history about what's worked and what hasn't worked. And then, you know, it, you know, and you really should be always, you know, pushing innovation on tried and true products, um, because that, honestly, that's the only way you're going to evolve and keep up with the marketplace. And I think having that bifurcation is definitely something that's, you know, stands to reason and is super, super sound. So when you think about different platforms, TikTok is surely a platform that is, you know, probably the largest in the social space to date, but there's simultaneously a transition towards uh, CTV. And so when you look at different generations adopting different platforms, how do you see brands uh, navigating this space, right? Where there's so much traction towards platforms that are social and interactive, not necessarily generating premium television content as you and I typically know it, but there's also 
a ton of data that supports the increase in viewership across CTV, OTT, and streaming platforms. So I guess mm -hmm. how do you brands determining um, how to navigate this increasingly fragmented landscape? Well, the first thing we do is we look at video distribution as a holistic plan, right? So whether you're buying linear or CTV or social video, it should be one approach, right? You're just delivering video in a different way and in a different place. But at the end of the day, it's about what's your delivery against a target audience across all those platforms. When you talk about TikTok and things like that, I think you really have to think about the relevance of the content that you're putting out there to that particular platform, right? So, you know, traditional TV is very much a push medium, but in those cases, it's more pull. So it's kind of push and pull, right? So whatever content people are seeing, they have the opportunity to potentially share it. So it's a little bit of a different approach. Um, but just in general, I would say like from, from a media agency standpoint, and when we plan video for our clients, I think, you know, kind of starting today and going forward, we're reaching a tipping point where you can reach as many eyeballs in streaming as you can on linear. And the costs of linear television are going up because the inventory is going down. So the supply and demand thing. So when we think about planning holistically, you know, traditionally it would be, let's plan our linear TV buy and then add in and supplement um, with OTT inventory. Now I feel like it should almost be reversed a little bit. Like let's plan the OTT and all the, you know, maximize the opportunity to reach your particular target wherever they are and almost add a layer of linear TV where it makes sense to ensure that you've got, you know, wide range, wide ranging reach and potentially adding reach to what your core plan is. So it's a little bit of a reverse mentality, I think, to, you know, versus what people are used to. But I kind of feel like 2021 is that tipping point. I love that concept of reversing the mentality. It does lead me to ask this question because you mentioned uh, the upfront markets. I think that, you know, certain trades have, uh, you know, with all due respect, wrongly predicted the end of upfronts for the past five years now. But I guess, where would you say you see the concept of upfronts playing out five years from now, right? So if we have to reverse our mentality and the data is now supporting this massive shift with an increase in fragmentation, that to me suggests that how linear upfronts are structured is kind of, you know, due for a restructuring. So do you see agency leads and brands actually taking a stand and saying, we will restructure upfronts going forward, similar to some of the stuff that uh, P&G has been known for, uh, for doing in the marketplace? In my opinion, I think the upfronts are going to be dead in five years. I don't think that there is going to be the concept of what an upfront is today is not going to be here in five years. I think all delivery of video in five years is going to be um, digital. And so, you know, and, and the pandemic has certainly expedited that trend, right? So I think it remains to be seen a little bit about how the marketplace is going to shift. But, you know, there will probably always be some sort of concept of, you know, securing premium inventory you know, maybe for a premium price or ahead of time. But I think the world has changed where there's not just 
like an upfront season. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think it's going to be a constant evolution. Um, and, you know, and on the businesses that I run, we're constantly planning. There's, it's not like it's, you know, it, it's not like there's one season for planning and then you execute for the end of the year. You know, it's like, we're always in planning mode. We're always in optimization mode. And so I think that's the other thing too, is as we get more and more data on what's working and more brands get smarter about how they're measuring the impact of their television, especially in the streaming space, it's going to allow us to be more nimble I think, and make changes on the fly. So I think it's just going to become a more dynamic marketplace as opposed to once a year. But I do think that like the traditional network upfront is not going to be here for much longer. I was definitely fishing for a hot take of some sort, and I think I got it. So thank you for that, Whitney. (laughs) And it's interesting that you say that too, because, you know, I've been fortunate enough to work on what I call both sides of the upfront. So my time at Viacom, when I was on the pricing and inventory team, there was a lot of work done to determine pricing, volume, CPM, so on and so forth. But then my time at Hulu was more on the strategic development of the actual event itself. And so I was convinced that the pandemic surely eliminating a few upfront presentations and you know all the bells and whistles that come with it, I was convinced that that would change the structure of the upfront if for no other reason, because we weren't able to have a party afterwards. Um, <laughs> we'll see, hopefully in five years, I do think that even if the concept doesn't disappear, I would love to see major agencies and major brands kind of um, you know, hold hands and innovate together to say that maybe there's a more effective way to buy media in advance. And so we can kind of discard this concept of upfront and scatter, but instead think about it in ways that you just spoke to. The other thing too, I think, is that going forward, there there is going to be different formats. I don't think everything's going to be a 15 or 30 second spot. In full disclosure, Haram did not pay me to say this, but Triple Lift, I think, and some of the things that you guys do allows brands to be much more integrated into the content. And those are the types of things that I think are going to really take off in the next few years. You know, and, and Haram, even at Hulu, you know, Hulu was doing things to be much more integrated and get outside of the 15 and 30 second spot, you know, to better engage consumers with the ad message and make it more relevant to whatever it is that they were watching. And I just think that is a trend that is definitely going to continue. What would you say is the biggest obstacle from brands shifting from traditional 15s and 30s into more integrated formats, whether it's in the form of product placement, branded content? I hear often hear, or we often hear, a desire to shift from that interrupted format into more integrated formats, but I'm not sure if the dollars are moving as quickly as the headline suggests. I would say it's probably fear of the unknown you know, and comfort, a comfort level with what you do know. And so I think, you know, trying new things like that, um, you know, but there's also some brands who are like, I just want to do it because it's new and different. And, you know, and, and maybe it's that one percent of their budget, you know, it falls within that bucket. But I think bigger brands are probably going to be pushing into those areas and trying to figure out how can they, you know, better engage consumers. And that will be, you know, I, I think as more and more brands start to see success doing some more innovative things, I think it starts to make other brands feel more comfortable. I think that's probably what it is. This, I don't know if there are enough success stories published, right? More case studies, more data around 
we innovated, we tried this format and kind of creating this halo effect for the rest of the industry. That is an interesting perspective that I haven't heard people talk about enough is the concept of publishing our wins. Because as you know, many brands are looking to kind of hold their strategies secret so that a competitive brand isn't following their same uh, blueprint. But I do see that, you know, the ability to merchandise these efforts and innovation could benefit the industry as a whole. I mean, I have several nieces and nephews and I can tell you their definition of television is very different. They could sit and watch something on YouTube for hours for them, they were watching TV. And in my mind, I'm like, you know, that, you know, I'm looking for more storytelling, more premium content, but to them, this is content. This is television. And so if we think about what's in store for the next generation of consumers, surely there has to be more risk uh, that a brand is willing to take in order to push the entire value chain forward. So we've talked a lot about the future of television and you know, made certain predictions on what it could look like. I know it's kind of putting you in a tough spot, but I would like to ask you to make a few predictions if you don't mind. The first of which is five years from now, so it's 2026, who would you say the major players in the streaming space are? And if you're uncomfortable naming platforms, Maybe if you could describe the characteristics of those players, of those streaming platforms. Five years from now, which platforms are we watching the most from a CTV perspective? I mean, the big three, Amazon, Netflix, and Hulu, which is now Disney Plus or, you know, part of Disney. So I would say Hulu slash Disney Plus. I mean, I think they're still going to be very dominant in the category. The other ones, I mean, you know, NBC Peacock is gaining traction. Apple is, I just read an article this morning saying how they're, you know, really going to start to scale now that a lot of the free trials that they had put into market, if you buy an Apple device are now expiring and they're going to start to pivot their strategy a little bit. Um, I could see them, you know, they've got so much money and content is so expensive. I think if anybody could you know, really start to gain traction. I think it could be Apple. I don't know. It's so hard to say. Honestly, it changes so fast. I mean, I I can't envision a world where those platforms that I just mentioned are not going to be dominant in five years because they're the ones who have gotten a head start and will continue to innovate and to invest into content. You know, and like I said, you know, the number of services that people have have expanded. So there's now more room, you know, for people to be watching that content. I think for me, one of the big questions is, you know, how much time do people really have to stream now that the world's going back to normal? And, you know, when we didn't have anything else to do and there were no concerts or anything like that, you know, shopping to go to retail for, you know, it was a lot easier to kick back and watch TV. So I don't know you know, as people maybe as, as TV viewership maybe starts to normalize a little bit, even if it's pre-pandemic levels, it's not going to be what it was during the pandemic. So, you know, going forward, I think it's hard to say how many services people are going to continue to have. Will they continue to have four main ones? I don't know. Um, but I do think the long tail of OTT services may consolidate um, in some way. I could see that happening because they're, they're not all going to survive. I don't think there's any way that they could. So speaking of survival, I would be remiss to not ask this question. And you and I both have friends and colleagues that we know and love and are very, very smart that took a chance at a very promising company called Quibi, 
Quibi's no longer around today, but I'm curious to get your perspective on how much of that was driven by trends we saw during the pandemic versus maybe timing of adoption for a product like this from consumers. So I think Quibi and Concept was genius. Like I thought what they were trying to do and the fact that they were trying to do something different was really interesting. I think they had a challenge in why would somebody go to a new destination to watch short form videos when they could already watch short form videos on YouTube or anywhere else, really. I mean, you could watch a 30 minute episode of something and just stop it after 10 minutes. So, I mean, I I don't know what kind of consumer research they did, but um, in theory, I had a lot of hope for them, even though, you know, at the time working on Hulu, they were a competitor. I really, I thought, you know, they had real potential. I think what the pandemic probably shed a light on is that their business model probably wasn't sustainable over the long term, and it just ended up, you know, um, you know, ending sooner than it probably would have. But I think they probably would have struggled because I think it's really hard to amass a new audience and and get people to use a platform in a new way than what they're used to. And I think, you know, the people at Quibi probably thought they were trying to solve a consumer need, but I think that consumer need was already solved by other platforms. So I don't know if people needed just one more to do that. I think the content was bought by Roku. Yep. So that'll be interesting to see what Roku does with that content. And if it will survive within a bigger ecosystem, you know, versus, you know, a platform where people are, are already going, what can they do with that content differently than maybe what Quibi would have done? And I think that'll be very interesting. I have a few follow-ups there. Recently read an article that suggests that viewership of what are now called Roku originals, the 75 plus shows that were acquired from Quibi in two weeks have uh, outpaced that of its entire viewership on Quibi. Assuming that data is true though, I wonder if it's an apples to apples comparison, meaning Quibi, Quick Bites, were episodic shows given to you in 10 minute bits and you would have to return when the next episode was dropped. And I think that the mindset of a viewer to watch something for 10 minutes and then come back to the next 10 minute episode that could be a day or even as much as a week later is a little different than dedicating 60 minutes, 90 minutes to watch all six to nine episodes in one sitting. And so I'm not sure if that headline is fair per se to Quibi, but early data does suggest that viewers are flocking to it, which to me supports the concept that, you know, there were great shows there, A-list talent in front of and behind the camera. But I agree that there may have been other ways. And again, everything I've read, everything I've heard suggests that they have tried several strategies. All innovation doesn't work, right? Sometimes maybe they were ahead of their time. Because I do, you know, as a YouTube viewer myself, I do sometimes seek more premium short form content that would serve me well on my Uber ride from my apartment to the dentist's office, right? And so it's just really interesting to hear other people's perspective on the fold because Quibi was surely the talk of the town from a media perspective yep. last summer. I know. Well, one of the other things that I thought was great about Quibi is not not just the content itself, but the the design of the interface and the fact that the video was designed for a mobile device, kind of like Snapchat. And I think that was really cool. Like that was, I never would have thought that that was such a differentiator, but that was one of the things I was personally impressed with. So I, 
I don't know if that's something that Roku is carrying through, but, or got as a part of the deal was the technology behind the interface. I think that was really interesting. And to your point, like maybe it was ahead of its time. Maybe it was, you know, but I do think it's really challenging to amass a new audience on a new platform that really doesn't have any legs, you know? So Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, like they have such a library of content and a built-in audience. So it's easy for them to have some failures because not every show is going to be a hit, but they can afford to do that because they've got so many other reasons for people to stay on their platform. Right. You're describing what Anita Elbers calls uh, the blockbuster rule. I would recommend all listeners go check out that book. It's an older book. It's called Blockbuster by Anita Elbers. I think she was uh, one of the youngest tenured professors at Harvard. Huge, huge fan of hers. I would like to end on a slightly different note than we do some of our other podcasts and shift gears into uh, kind of diversity, equity, and inclusion, which you did reference earlier when it comes to brand building. I know you and I have known each other for years, and I know that you're a proud member of Chief, uh, the private network designed specifically for women leaders. And so my two-part final question to you is, A, why is that organization important to you? And then B, what sort of advice would you give future leaders in our industry who come from typically noted as underrepresented groups and or backgrounds? So to answer your first question, why is the organization important to me? So I'm actually a pretty brand new member. And I actually thought about joining for a long time because it's not cheap, first of all. But secondly, um, I know it's a big time investment. And I wanted to make sure that what I was putting into it, I was going to get out of it. And I have to say, it has been amazing. I purposely joined because I wanted to expand my network to women that I could learn from. And really respect. Um, And so you get assigned to a core group of women and the women in my group are not only very diverse, but from an ethnic standpoint, but also just from a job standpoint, like we all come from different industries, different types of jobs. But the one common theme is that we're all executives in whatever respective industry that we're in. And it just brings such a nice um, kind of support system, you know? And so we, you know, everything that has come up in my group that we talk about is, you know, we all have similar challenges and then getting different perspectives on how to tackle different things is, is really invaluable. Um, and it's just, it's been a really rewarding experience so far. So I'm, I'm very excited to see, you know, how things evolve. Um, And then the second one, you asked me about what what advice would I give to underrepresented groups? And I would say this is both, you know, from a, you know, um, ethnicity standpoint, as well as like a gender perspective or even, um, you know, sexual orientation. Like, I just think that it's such a unique time where it's almost like the whole world is welcoming the diversity and it's such a nice feeling to know that that it is evolving and so many companies support it, including my own. My, my own company is very supportive of, you know, making sure that we're hiring diversely and that, you know, and that we're supporting people who are diverse within our organization. But my advice would be to know your value. You know, it's like now that there is this opportunity to kind of shine, it's like, I think people kind of second guess themselves. I certainly have as a woman, I've been in situations where I was the only woman, 
And, you know, and I, I kind of questioned, like, do I even belong here kind of thing? And, and it's funny, you know, people talk about this um, all the time is like, am I even worthy of, of being in this room or sitting at this table or having an opinion on a particular topic? And so my advice is know your value and you deserve to be in the room. I appreciate the candor. I appreciate the answer so much as someone who can totally and fully relate. And I would like to thank you, Wendy Aldrich, for joining us on Spotless today. It's always a pleasure connecting with you, picking your brain on all things marketing. And I hope to see you in real life at some point soon. I hope so too. Thank you, Haram.